want to say hello to everybody, especially to our guests today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Craig Hayes. I'm not, really not the regular uh, preaching minister here. Um, I am one of the shepherds of Netherwood Park Church of Christ, and I appreciate the opportunity I've been given by Walter and by the other uh, elders uh, to speak to you today. Originally, I was scheduled to speak last week, and people saw it necessary to call an emergency cancellation of all services when the word got out. But uh, fortunately, we've, um, I'm persistent. So anyway, glad to have you. I um, want to start off with saying that last week, of course, would have been the first Sunday after Christmas. And as such, that's part of why I had that passage read. But the thing is I wanted to point out is as we go through the holiday seasons, we tend to think of two major holidays having religious significance. We think of Christmas, where we honor the birth of Christ. And well, it should be, because that is the time when God actually saw fit to send his son to earth, and his son was willing to humble himself and to become just like us and live a life of service and suffering on behalf of us and on behalf of God. Likewise, we also celebrate Easter, where you recognize the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And again, that's obviously what we often focus on, not only on Easter, but like when we take of the Lord's Supper each week. We especially want to look at that, at that sacrifice that we see at that point as Christ taking and his overcoming of death that follows that point in time. But I want to say that there's one more missing element of Christ's journey that I want us to focus on today. It's one that people don't think of as part of the journey a lot of time. And that's the glorification of Christ. Christ glorified. I want to talk a little bit about what that means and why it's important to understand the full journey and why a lot of times our usual process of looking at Christ's birth to death to resurrection as that not being the full and complete story that we need to understand. In that passage that was read a moment ago from Luke, it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So what does the word glory mean? It's a word that's used a lot in Scripture. I mean, and there's a lot of definitions. One of the definitions I read said praise, honor, or distinction uh, extended by common consent. Praise, honor, or distinction. And so I'm trying to look a little bit about what glory means and about why glory was appropriate to give to Jesus. Starting in Acts 3.13, Peter says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. So Peter makes a point that God has glorified Jesus. So that's the first statement of fact we need to establish. So why? Well, if you flip back to John 17, it's really interesting. Jesus expected to be glorified by God. Starting in verse 1, it says, These things Jesus spoke. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now, 
glorify thou me, together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. A couple of things are interesting. Jesus had the nerve, if you will, to ask to be glorified by God. Why did he feel that was appropriate? Well, in verse 4, it makes the point. He had spent his life doing the work of God and glorifying God through the work which he did. So he had lived a life devoted to making sure he not only did what God wanted, but that people understood that why he did what he did glorified God. When you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. See, we think about, a lot of times we talk about what the prophets prophesied when we look at Old Testament prophecy. And we certainly look at the suffering servant concept that appears in the Old Testament. And we look at things like, where was Jesus going to be born and that he was going to be born of a virgin? But here, Peter specifically makes two points that he thought were important from what the prophets were dwelling on. One is the sufferings of Christ. And the second are the glories to follow. So, if Christ was glorified because of his sufferings, because of the work he did, and because of the efforts he made to glorify God while he was on the earth, how was Jesus glorified by God? So, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you've got several things from here that shows how Jesus was exalted. He was given a special name, and at that name it said every knee should bow. And it's talking about those who are in heaven, those who are here on earth, and those who are under the earth obviously implying hell. So at all levels, people were expected to bow at the name of Christ. And you notice again, they're doing this on purpose to glorify the name of the Father. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, we've got this idea of the suffering, but the key is, and I want you to focus on from this passage, is the fact that God has set Christ down at the right hand of his throne. He has made him serving, ruling with him in heaven. Okay, so what's that got to do with us? A couple of things. One, if you notice in that 
verse 2 of Hebrews, you notice it not only says he suffered, but do you notice why it says Jesus suffered in there? Look at the passage. Used to, every time we read these things, and I'm not saying it's not true when we talk at the Lord's Supper, when we talk at any other time, we say that Jesus did it purely for us, right? And I'm not saying he didn't sacrifice for me and you. But there's an interesting thing it says in verse 2 of Hebrews. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. All through this process, Jesus had the strength to do what he needed to do because he knew about the joy that was to be coming. He knew about the glory that was going to be coming. And that is how he had the strength to push through the difficult times. So, the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was the suffering, was the service, so that he could be glorified. And what I want to focus on today, what I want you to understand today, is where Jesus is after he ascended from the earth, in other words, at the right hand of God in glory, is every bit as important as what happened on the earth. And it sounds odd, because it doesn't matter if Jesus had merely been raised from the dead. Because if you read scripture, he's not the only one raised from the dead. There are a number of individuals raised from the dead in the Bible. And none of that had a bit of impact on me. But the fact is, is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he went on to be king and ruler, our Lord, everyone's Lord in eventuality. And that's what really matters in the long run. Because if he had not ascended to that throne, there would be no reason. But the fact is, he not merely overcame death. He became much more than that. I want to talk about a place in uh, Barcelona, Spain. We actually got to go there last May. Uh, this place is called La Sagrada Familia. It is a cathedral in Barcelona that was... They began construction on it in 1882. The reason I say this, why it's important, is it was begun in 1882. They hoped to finish it sometime between 2026 and 2041. So by the time it's done, they may have spent 160 years on the construction of this cathedral. It was designed primarily by a guy by the name of Antoni Gaudí. He died in 1926 working on it. So, we're 90 years past his death, and it's still under construction. And I want to talk about it. As you approach this thing, by the way, there's going to be a tower before it's done that's like 560 feet, and the largest tower is not there yet. But they designed this building. One side was to be the back side, nothing special. But then they had three other facades, three other designs they were going to do on the other sides of the walls. The first one is called the Nativity Facade. And the nativity facade is just what you would think. It has scenes of Christ's birth and things surrounding all those sorts of issues. It also has a lot of nature scenes, a lot of things about new birth, new life, incredibly intricate designs. On the opposite side of the building, it's what they call the passion facade. The passion facade is almost completed. It is stark and harsh, a much more modern feel. And it's designed, obviously, to give you a sense of you know, 
foreboding a little bit because of the fact that it is discussing the crucifixion. Though it also does have the resurrection scene in there as well. Um, and so that's the other side. Now the third facade is called the glory facade. It's intended to be on the front of the cathedral. The glory facade is still totally blank. Not a thing. It is a blank wall. And it was designed so to be the front of the building and to lead to a large park or mall, or whatever you call it. So from the main intersection in Barcelona, you would look up at that cathedral and what you would be struck with was the glory facade. But it hasn't kind of, hasn't quite come out the way it was intended by the architect. See, as you journey through the Sagrada Familia, you enter at the nativity facade. That's where everybody goes down. That's where a lot of that booths are, a lot of the information. So people mill around a lot on the side of the nativity facade. As you work your way through the cathedral, you end up at the passion facade, and that's where you exit. While you're there, you never see the glory facade. I mean, it's a blank wall. Why would you? You don't go through a door there. You don't walk by it. You don't see models of it. The reason you don't see models of it, the model was destroyed in 1936 during the Spanish Civil War. They are gradually piecing it together to see what it's exactly supposed to look like. In addition, they pretty much got it pieced together, but they haven't decided if they make it, what materials they should make it out of. And one more thing. In 1976, the area near the Sagrada Familia was rezoned. And immediately across the street, where the glory facade was to stretch out into the park area, the mall area that you could view it from afar, they built an apartment complex building. What was intended to be the central point of the structure by the architect remains blank, remains uncertain as to how it will be constructed, and even if it's built, they have built buildings so that you will never see it unless things change the way the architect intended it to be seen. Thousands and thousands of people go through this building every year. It's one of the biggest tourist attractions in Spain. And no one sees the glory facade. No one thinks about the glory facade. And that's the way we often live our lives. When it comes to Christianity, we often lose sight of the end game. What God intended, the glory in heaven. We focus on positive things. Don't get me wrong. We focus on the birth of Christ. We focus on the suffering and sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. We focus on important church works. We focus on serving the poor. We focus on educating the people here. We focus on raising our children to have good, solid, moral Christian values. We do positive things. But we lose sight of the focal point of what the architect intended. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul actually says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But yet, as Christians, what do we usually focus on? We focus on this life, right? Remember what sustained Jesus through his life. The joys to come. Are we stronger than that? Colossians 1, 25 through 28. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is... The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. And going on, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. So if we want to have this hope and glory, it implies that something more needs to happen. Paul is saying we need to be presented complete in Christ. So how do we become complete? Back to Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 this time. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself I become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you read through this passage. Christ humbled himself, and God exalted him. And what that's presented for us here is the pattern to follow. We need to live lives in which we are humbling ourselves to service purely for the glory of God so that we can be made complete. And that allows for the glories to follow and allows for us to be perfected. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. 
but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, sorry, there's a kicker here. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed to us. So we've got a couple of things here. We've got to put away the things of the flesh. This doesn't just mean sinful things. This has to mean that where our focus is, where our priority is. We're in this world. But scripture says we're not to be of this world. So what we're looking for is how can we be part of this world without this being what consumes us, without this being what defines us. And that's why that key keeps being is it's not just about doing good things. It's not about some sort of self-abuse when I talk about suffering. It's about it all being about how do we use this to glorify God. So in everything we do, how do we keep that in mind that we're going to glorify God? Because the amazing part about this passage, he's saying that we need to put away the things of the flesh to receive God's glory. But the thing is, as we go from birth to death and then on to glory, it's because that's what God wants. Jumping down to... um, uh, Sorry. Jumping down to verse 29... For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. With whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. God has had this in our plan, in his plan from the beginning of time, that we should be glorified. Do you ever think of your life that way? As God seeking to glorify You? God's plan for you from the beginning of time was for you to be in heaven, to have the same inheritance along with his son Jesus. It changes the way, it should change the way we do church. If you had that in mind. It doesn't become about to-do lists. It doesn't have to do about getting rid of your guilt by coming to church on Sunday mornings. It doesn't have to do with making our family happy by coming along instead of making the parents drag you to church. It has to do with realizing where that final goal is, that final destination And it's amazing to me that God wants to glorify us as his children. Because our journey is no more a journey from the cradle 
ending at the grave any more than Christ's journey was only from the manger to the tomb. There's a step beyond on our journey. And we need to view the journey as complete and not limit ourselves with what is logical to see is what happens on earth. That's why we focus on what Jesus does from birth to resurrection because that's the part that people could physically see. It's the part we can wrap our heads around. It's the part that's on the earth. That's why there's passages like Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and Zechariah and stuff like that because you've got to have passages like that to help you see there's more to what there is in this world than what we can see. Going back to Luke 2.14, it's interesting. This is one passage where the translators of the King James had a limitation. Oddly enough, it's just one letter different from what the modern translations in the Greek were using. The King James read in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's the way, that's the Linus version, right? From Peanuts Christmas stories, right? Goodwill toward men, all men. But notice most of what your modern versions read more like. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom God is well pleased. The promise of peace was not for all men. The promise was for those for whom God was well pleased. It's a big difference in a letter between the way the translations worked out. So it's about living a life that pleases God. And to please God, we need to live a life that glorifies him. And to get to the same end point that Christ got to, therefore expects the same journey that allowed for Christ to be glorified. It needs to include commitment, it needs to include suffering, and it needs to include sacrifice. But the great thing is the promise of glory is real, and it's available to everybody. There is not one person in this world who is not given that opportunity to share in that glory. And again, if we focus on that idea, and I want us to focus here, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, I want you to understand how much that changes the way we should look at everything. It changes the fact of just getting things done on folks in our day, an example I use a lot of time is the idea of a mouse. Mice have really bad eyesight. I don't know if you know that. They really can't see much past their nose. That's why they've got great hearing. That's why they've got the whiskers, all these things, to get other senses to make things work. So basically a mouse runs continually from day to day, never seen past its nose. You feel like that a lot? You get through the day and you know you were really busy, but you're not quite sure how you were busy. And so coming to view and focusing on God's glory for us is a way of changing that perspective, a way of changing the scale of that picture. And it's that changing that we need to do to change the way we look at our lives and the way we look at that and to focus on what this can really mean for ourselves 
for this congregation and for this world around us if we stop worrying about what's at the end of our nose, if we just stop looking at what goes on from birth to death, but really start what happens when we pursue a path toward glory. And that's the path we want to share with you. We're going to offer an invitation moment. You're welcome, if you would like, to come down front and share with us your needs and how we can get you on that path toward glory. You can meet in the library that's back in this part of the building. One of our elders and his wife will be back there with you. Or you can talk to anybody after the service. In addition to that, I want to encourage this to be for everybody, though. I want you to talk to each other about how you can change your focus from just doing church work, from just doing daily lives, to living a life that's focused on the bigger picture and on the eventual goal. Because it's that eventual goal that gives us the strength to suffer. It's that eventual goal that gives us the strength to sacrifice. It's what did it for Christ. We can't expect any different for us. We stand while we sing. Sing, Lord, like a shepherd.